Welcome to the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm your host, Paula Crossfield, a Vedic astrologer, media strategist, and health coach helping you live in your purpose. And that is what this podcast is all about. So let's jump right in to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm Paula Crossfield, and I am so thrilled to have Anusha Wijaya Kumar here as my guest today. Anusha is very passionate about honoring the roots of yoga and also educating people on the importance of decolonizing these practices. She's a guest lecturer at San Diego State University for their Religions of India program. She's also a faculty member and digital columnist with Yoga Journal, a faculty member with Off the Mat and yoga teacher and podcast host with Yoga International. In addition to that, she's a wellness consultant for Hogue Hospital in Orange County, California. As you'll hear in this conversation, social justice is really at the heart of what Anusha is involved with. And she tells us how we can think of the original teachings and what yoga truly is and how that relates to social justice and decolonization work that's going on for so many of us right now. So I really, really hope you enjoy this conversation. I think her story is inspiring. She also has a book that just came out called Meditation with Intention, Quick and Easy Ways to Create Lasting Peace. And we will link to that book and her other contact points inside the show notes. So enjoy the conversation. Hi, Anusha. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited that you're here. Thank you so much for inviting me on, Paula. It's a delight to be with you today. So I'm excited to talk to you because uh, for so many reasons, I love what you do online and the, the presence that you have and the way that you speak so authoritatively about the ways of India. So I was wondering if you could talk first a little bit about your childhood and your introduction to meditation and, and, you know, your, your background and just give us some insights. I would love to. So I was born and raised in the philosophy of Sanatana Dharma or Hinduism, as it's more commonly known by. So the path of yoga itself has really made up the fabric of my life and not what we think about as yoga in the West, which is purely asana. That for me came much later. The path of yoga for me was intertwined with dhyana, devotion, prayer, meditation, mantra, Vedanta philosophy, and ultimately what yoga really is, which is a sacred philosophy. And one of the Shaddarshanas, six philosophies associated with Sanatana Dharma or Hinduism. So to me, my work around decolonization is really focused on deconstructing what we really consider yoga to be in the West, which is much more than asana. And encouraging everybody to understand what the essence of yoga is, which ultimately is meditation, which is mindfulness, so that we can actually practice this off our mats and in our daily lives. Awesome. I do want to talk to you all about decolonization and yoga, but I sort of wanted to talk with your talks first about your story. Like in the book, you talk about tapping back into these ways when you were in a job that you didn't love. And the book is called Meditation with Intention for those out there who may be interested. She has this new book out. um, And we're going to talk a little bit more about what's in there. But 
Can you talk about that piece? Like, what did you do when you realized that your job wasn't what you loved or what you were meant to be doing? And, and how did you use these tools? Yoga has really made up the fabric of my life. And to me, it's a lived experience and it's a practice. Yoga is a practice. It's not something that we are saying. It's something that we are actually living, doing and embodying. So, I mean, I've used the philosophy of yoga, the essence of, of my faith in all aspects of my life, in my relationships, in my interactions with colleagues at work, with business connections. But specifically, it was tapping into my practice and communing with, you know, divine consciousness, divine inspiration that led me to go down the path six years ago of pursuing my dharma, which is the path of right conduct, and creating Shanti within, which is my business focused on wellness. And I talk about, you know, I won't go into too much of the details because, you know, readers can find out much more about my journey in, in my book. But without my practice of yoga and without my faith, I wouldn't have had the courage to embody and actually live the essence of the practice to have the strength to leave the path that I thought I would be in, the safe, well-trodden path, but often the path that doesn't give us happiness, that doesn't give us peace. And certainly for myself, that was becoming more and more apparent. And I share in the book that I actually... The deep spiritual awakening came for me when I was rushed to the hospital with acute appendicitis and had to have emergency surgery and was in the hospital for three days. And that was the wake up call when the universe said, you know, you're not listening. So we are going to make you listen. And that was when I really started to reconcile with the tough decision to leave and to pursue uh, being an entrepreneur. And more than just being an entrepreneur, knowing that this was really a calling for me in this life. So, you know, some listeners may be in this position right now because of what's been going on in the world. There's just been this huge shift, a lot of people changing their job and thinking they want to work differently. So what advice would you give to people who are trying to help, like figure out what is my path? What am I supposed to be doing? I mean, for those that are new to yoga, by the way, meditation is yoga, is to begin a daily meditation practice. I mean, aside from wanting to change careers, that's going to give you a lot more clarity with all of the decisions that we face in life, be it with our jobs, careers, be it with our relationships, quite frankly, be it with ourselves and our own habitual internal negative narrative that we all have. So meditation is for everybody. And irrespective of your ethnicity, your religion, your culture, whatever it might be, these practices are accessible and attainable. And like I talk about in the book, all it takes is five minutes a day. And I see this in the lives of my patients every day at Hoke Hospital, where I'm the wellness consultant leading on all of the meditation and mindfulness for our Women's Health Institute and also at our Neurosciences Institute. And people often think, wow, really? Can it happen in five minutes? Yes, it can. But not five minutes once a month, not five minutes once every six months, five minutes daily, ideally twice a day. And what happens when you begin a daily meditation practice is you realize that you need it. I'm fully aware that meditation for me in my day is very much similar to showering, brushing my teeth and eating. It's a part, an integral part of my day and my life. I need to do it. If I miss my morning meditation for whatever reason, and I do it a bit later in my day, I feel the impact. 
So I specifically wake up early in order to do it first thing in the morning because I can see the impact it has on my mind and in my life. So what I would say to anybody listening is meditate and really decolonize what you think meditation is because that's part of the reason people don't meditate. And I go into a lot more detail in meditation with intention about this. And the book is really for anybody that is new to a practice, but also for those that are practitioners because most people when I ask this question, when I speak around or teach around the world, people aren't meditating daily. It might be three times a week, but it's seven days a week. And that's the ultimate goal. Because when we make it a daily consistent practice, we're also focused then on the eight limbs, Sage Pathanjali's eight limbs, which is about we need a consistent, dedicated yoga practice. And meditation is an integral, one of the most important aspects of that eight-limbed path. Far more important than asana, quite frankly. The only reason that we do asana is to ready and steady the mind and body to come into that place of stillness and quiet within. So this book really felt to me like a manual for living in your purpose. When I was reading it, I was like, wow, this is there's so much of your story in there, but also just of how we unfold this question. So what does it mean to you to live in your purpose? The more that we meditate, the more that we become in alignment with ourselves. And what I mean by that is that's yoga to me. Are my thoughts aligning with my words, which are in turn aligning with my actions? And let's be honest, Paula, most of the time we're out of alignment. We're thinking one thing, we're saying something else, we're doing something else. And so my personal goal every day is just to be in alignment to the best of my ability. And what I really want us to decolonize as well in yoga is this striving for perfection all the time. What is perfection? That's unattainable. What we need to be doing is striving to be the best that we can be in each moment of each day and utilizing the tools of our practice in order to get there. That's the goal of yoga. So think about that. Am I being authentic? Because the thing that I have seen so prevalent over the past year in the yoga and wellness space is inauthenticity and people posting something because it's on trend or they're doing it for followers or they're doing it because they feel they should, but they're not living with integrity or living with that purpose in every other aspect of their life. And your yoga, if your yoga practice is you posting online, it's yoga is much, 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 much more than that. That's really got nothing to do with it. That's a wonderful vehicle and platform. But if that's your your main goal is your grid and, and what you're posting, you're really missing the essence of what yoga is. So on that note, you know, I love so much how every single time I open my Instagram, I see you speaking out on these really important issues, a lot around social justice, obviously. And so I'm wondering if you can help people understand how yoga is, in fact, social justice, like you wrote in your InStyle article. Can you draw a line there for us so that people can really understand that? Well, to me, and the way that I was raised, in the philosophy that I was raised in, the intersection of yoga was always one that was intersecting with social justice, that was intersecting with intersectionality. And so that's you know, the gift that my parents really and my family gave me because that isn't the case for everybody that's been raised in Hinduism and Sanatana Dharma. So I feel very, very blessed in that sense. And Seva, selfless service and karma yoga and bhakti yoga was always an integral part of my life. 
So to me, there is no separation. You know, to others, they may have differing opinions, they may disagree, and that's fine. You know, we're not a monolith as South Asians and quite frankly, as Hindus either. Each of us has been raised in a different lineage and a different philosophy. And so each of us, as our faith teaches us, is pursuing our own path within the context of the family that we were born in, the karma that we have to play out in this life, etc. But to me, we cannot negate the suffering of others. And I think really because of the continual colonization of yoga, we're very much focused on rife individualism in yoga and this sovereignty. The new thing now, which is, well, that's my truth and your truth. There is truth. We can have opinions on matters, but that doesn't make it truth, Paula. So there's so much, like the last year has just made all of this that was bubbling under the surface really come out and show the ugliness and the racism and the white supremacist nature of what has been consistent in yoga throughout the decades in many ways, which is great because it gives us a chance to dismantle that. But to me, very simply, in Hinduism, Sanatana Dharma, we believe we are now in the age of the Kali Yuga. We have four yugas in Hinduism. The Kali Yuga is where the bull of Dharma stands on only one leg, right? There are four legs to a bull. We're on one leg. So if and that's clearly apparent and, and, and something that, you know, in, in my years on this planet, in this body, in this life, I'm seeing that more and more and more every day. So if I, in the time that we are in, in the context that we are in, I'm still only going to focus on myself, that's problematic to me and really goes against the teachings and the philosophy of what yoga really is. Yoga is a path of individual liberation. But ultimately, in the time and context that we are in, individual liberation is intimately connected to collective liberation. We cannot have one without the other. And quite frankly, Swami Vivekananda talked about this all of the time, as did Mahatma Gandhi. They were both Hindu reformers. They both firmly believed in karma yoga and seva. They talked about this, as did Sri Ramakrishna, who Swami Vivekananda, who was the first person to bring the teachings of yoga to the West in 1893 at the World Religions Congress in Chicago, talked about. So as did the Holy Mother Sri Sarada Devi, Sri Ramakrishna himself was a feminist. So people that are still trying to hold on to me, 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 and only have compassion and love for people that look like them, we can see how much harm that's creating. And then, of course, alongside that, we have the people that want to feed into the, the facade of neutrality, when ultimately there really is no neutral in the time that we're in. And I've seen that vividly in the community that I live in. Silence is not only complicit, it creates violence. Yeah. And so if you are still only focused on yourself and you can negate the deafening sound of the suffering around you, then I really want to invite your audience into questioning their proximity to power and privilege. And there's nothing wrong with having privilege. I've got privilege myself. But what am I doing, Paula, with my practice and my privilege to help and alleviate the suffering of others? And that's the most important question that we can be asking ourselves in the time that we are in. Thank you so much for just laying that out. I think that's so helpful. Speaking truth to power. You know, I just every time I see your posts, I'm like, yeah, 
go. <laughs> so well, thank, thank you for you. that. <laughs> yeah. So if, if people want to understand more about decolonizing yoga, like say they have had, had a yoga practice for a really long time, like what would you say are some important things that they need to keep in mind right now about that? To be very aware that the yoga that they may be practicing, the yoga that they think they know has been heavily commercialized, has been heavily commoditized and has been desecrated from the ancient sacred philosophy and faith that it is. So number one, to learn from South Asian teachers. We are the most underrepresented group in yoga and wellness. Slowly, things are beginning to shift, and we need that to learn from South Asian teachers, to learn from those of us that have been raised in the philosophy of Sanatana Dharma and yoga and Hinduism. So you can better understand what the practice and the path of yoga really constitutes. I offer decolonizing yoga trainings. Uh, I don't have another one this year, but I have a number of different offerings. In fact, Dr. Sham Ranganathan, his work, I greatly recommend to anybody listening. He's on Instagram at, at Yoga Philosophy, and he's a philosophy professor at York University in Canada. And first of all, there's a dearth of South Asian voices in philosophy, at in, in academia. I myself am a guest lecturer at San Diego State University as part of their religions of India. And it's wonderful that we're now seeing South Asians and specifically South Asian women teaching about decolonizing yoga, teaching about yoga philosophy, because we need it, quite frankly. Dr. Sham Ranganathan and I have a training coming up on his platform in August, which I think many of your audience would be interested in. It's focused on yoga or origins, lineages, and cultural appropriation. So we'll be coming together to co-lead this training. So stay tuned. For details, you can follow me at Shanti Within, and uh, I'll as soon as it becomes available, I'll make you aware so you can share it. But it's a much needed offering. So you can hear from two South Asians who are knowledgeable in this field. And we're coming together to co-lead this training as we both independently do our own trainings. But we feel that there's an urgent need to offer this to the yoga community around the world. So we're really excited about that. Great. Yeah, we'll definitely share when, when that comes out. Um, so one thing you said, I think it was the other day when you were speaking with Sean Korn, I heard you say yoga was never meant to make us comfortable. And I really love that because that's so key to all the things that you've just shared. You know, that's like the, the kernel, if you want to say anything about that. Oh, yes, I'd be happy to. And, and that's the problem. Uh, you know, wherever I turn, it seems that people are doing yoga to escape. We cannot escape the reality of our life. We use the tools of yoga to embrace our suffering and understand in Eastern philosophy that we believe in the duality of life, which I also talk about in the book, that suffering is an inevitable part of life. So in Eastern philosophy and in Dharmic faiths, we don't run away from it. We learn to embrace and accept it because that is how we can transcend it. Fast forward to looking at how your yoga is portrayed. It's really the antithesis of that message. It's run from suffering, run from reality, come here to escape and come here to engage in harmful cultural appropriation and toxic spiritual bypassing, which is none of what the practice is about and ultimately isn't going to serve you, help you or save you. So again, we need to deconstruct and decolonize what we really think yoga is about. Yoga was never meant to make us comfortable. We have the tools of viveha, discernment, 
Vairagyam, detachment, as expounded in many of our classical texts, specifically Sage Pathanjali's Yoga Sutras. So we're going to lean into that discomfort through using Viveha discernment, through using the buddhi, the intellect, one of the aspects of the mind, the chitta, to actually hold ourselves with love, with compassion, with non-judgment, so we in turn can offer that to everybody else. Not I'm running and I'm escaping because that doesn't work. And that's part of the problem. You know, I'm often told, oh, I came to yoga and it's really helped me. But that's wonderful that it helped you. But if you continue to be self-serving with your practice, it's not actually helping you and it's not helping anybody else. Did you know that this podcast has been made possible by listener support? If you like what you're hearing and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash weave your bliss. There are lots of great gifts, including a weekly astrology update from me and a monthly live new moon circle. Thanks for your support. Your book is called Meditation with Intention. I'm wondering, you know, it's infused with intentions. So what is the relationship between intention and meditation? And what is your intention for the book? My intention for the book was just to make my work, I guess, and teachings more widely accessible to everybody. That was the ultimate goal. I realized that I do as much as I can, being a woman of color in science, working at the hospital, teaching my decolonization trainings and doing a myriad of other things. But I wasn't really able to get out to the mass audience. And and the book has enabled me to do that at a very accessible price point. So if you're interested in my work, if you're interested in learning more about me, the book is a great introduction and will really help you. There are nine intentions. They're all five minutes long. It talks about the importance of decolonizing yoga. It talks about what meditation and mindfulness is. It brings the neuroscience into it. And it really teaches people that living with intention helps us because of the type of time we're in, the harried, fast pace of society, the fact that we don't have great attention spans because there is so much going on, because we are consistently bombarded by so much information. So the intentions kind of help us to focus and give us bite-sized ways of introducing meditation and mindfulness into our lives to therefore change our mindset and change our lives. And the ultimate goal of the book was just to really introduce people to a practice that can work for them in the way that suits them best. One of the intentions works for you, great, do that one. If none of the intentions work for you, hopefully you'll be inspired through the book to create something that does work for you. To really showcase that meditation isn't ableism, it's not heteronormative views of what people should look like, which is white and able-bodied and thin, to showcase that meditation is yoga and that meditation is accessible to everybody and is ultimately an inclusive practice and a far cry from what we see every day in yoga in the West. So you do work with cancer patients and I think with drug and alcohol rehabilitation as well. What is it that draws you to these groups in particular? And can you share a little bit about your work there? So the drug rehabilitation was never something that I had thought I would be involved with. It wasn't certainly something that was necessarily calling me. It just seemed to keep coming to me. 
And my work in acute rehabilitation has really shown me the power of meditation for people with extensive trauma. So really teaching yoga from a trauma-informed perspective for people who are neurodivergent, how much pranayama breathwork practices can help them, for people that have mental health issues, be it bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, all of those things. I mean, I've seen the full gamut, the full spectrum in the work that I've done in addiction over the past six years, and it's really helped to shape my work in many ways and understand how much these practices can change people's lives. And that's been amazing to see. And and that's the same work that I'm doing in breast cancer, ovarian cancer, and as part of our maternal mental health program at Hogue, to really see how these ancient sacred practices can help anybody if they choose to make the time to do them. And everybody has five minutes. That's what you say. No one can tell me that they don't have five minutes. I say this all the time and I mean it. We all spend more than five minutes doing nonsense every day, be it scrolling through social media, looking at YouTube videos, looking at animal memes. So what I say to my patients is do the nonsense, but don't delude yourself into thinking that you don't have five minutes to actually dedicate to a practice that can and will change your life. We all find time to do the things that we want to do but we don't find time to do the things that we need to do. So I have a few rapid fire questions for you. If you're down, you can answer them however much time you, you want, but some of them are pretty quick. So what is one piece of advice that has really helped you in your life? Be unattached to other people's opinions. And that's one of the biggest things that I see in my patients and clients and and just on Instagram is everybody is so attached to what everybody else thinks about them. When I'll circle back to what I said earlier, when you are in alignment with thought, word and deed, and you are communing with universal consciousness, the Paramatma, which is the ultimate goal of yoga, our yoga practice, that union from individual consciousness to universal consciousness, it really is irrelevant what anybody else thinks. You know, for me, my director is divine consciousness. My director is God. That's who I'm communing with. That's who I'm talking to, quite frankly, Paula, all the time. God and I are just having this ongoing dialogue. And to me, that's the most beautiful aspect of my practice. So that helps me to disassociate from all of the noise and everybody's opinions and to really focus on what am I doing in this life and how am I living in alignment and how am I following my dharma and allowing you know, what has to unfold in my life unfold, but directing it to a degree, with that alignment with divine consciousness. So be unattached to people's opinions because that can derail people. And people end up, like I talk about in the book, living their life for somebody else, which ultimately doesn't give you any peace or balance or equanimity within. Totally. So when you feel anxious, confused, or frustrated, what's the first thing you do to ground yourself? I think I, know, I might know the answer. <laughs> well, I immediately take my attention to my breath. And I take an inhale and I take an exhale and I'll do that as many times as I need to. And I connect with divine consciousness. So I utilize the power of my breath to bring the body and mind together as one. And then I connect with God. I do. And that brings me a lot of peace. And that's why ultimately that's what meditation is all about. And that's what the the path of yoga is all about. And the other thing I have to say as well is people negate the yamas and niyamas, which are our moral and personal observances. We shouldn't even be doing anything else if we're not living with integrity. That's the first two steps 
the first two limbs on the eight limb path. Everyone just thinks yoga is asana. And then they're not worried about the first two limbs or any of the limbs thereafter. So if we are actually following the path of yoga, we'll be able to feel more peaceful and at times of distress, utilize our practice to help us. Hmm. Thanks for the clarification. So what is your favorite hot beverage? So here we go. I've got it right here. But herbal teas, like this is a lemon, lemongrass and ginger, which is one of my favorites. Any kind of ginger tea, I absolutely adore. But I just love water and, and herbal tea. <laughs> and I'm laughing because my husband just, whenever I say to him, I don't think I'm drinking enough water. He's like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's kind of comical because my son's favorite beverage is water. So, yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. So your last meal on earth would be? Sri Lankan food. So Sri Lankan Sri Lankan food, without a shadow of a doubt. There's so many wonderful things that we have, string hoppers, hoppers, and really my mum's rice and curry, to be honest with you. So if my last meal was to be had, it would definitely be my own indigenous cuisine. Tell us what part, I think you told us this already, but what part of your morning routine is non-negotiable and why? So my dhyana practice, which encompasses the meditation, it encompasses pranayama, it encompasses mantra, and it also encompasses prayer. That's how I begin my day. It really sets me up for the day and I'll do it for as long as I have, to be honest with you. So some days I can do a longer practice and some days I have to compact it. But irrespective of the time, it always encompasses those elements. And a reading of of the sutras, I forgot that one. So one sutra a day is what I do. And that also really helps to set me up and ground me for the day and give me something to kind of focus on and hold the philosophy as I move throughout my day. I love that. Um, So tell us about a person who inspires you and why. I mean, my book was dedicated to my parents because they have been two of the greatest inspirations in my life. And especially my mother, without my mother and my amama, my grandmother, my pediama, my mom's elder sister who lived with us when we were young and helped take care of us. I had wonderful examples from this strong, you know, the matriarchy of what yoga is, what yoga constitutes, what our faith is, what our philosophy is. And my mother really helped to ground me in that practice and and was the one that would take us to the temple and take us to prayers. And then we went to Tamil Hindu school as well every Sunday. So my mother's had a great impact on my life. And she was the person that, you know, when I was 12, I certainly didn't want, want to volunteer she was <laughs> it's not really something at 12 but you're like oh how super exciting and she was also, you know she was volunteering with the blind and so after school i would have to go and help as well and she was also the organization that she was affiliated with was also inclusive of lgbtq so one of her patients was actually lgbtq and blind i was having to help like do groceries help to take it back to their homes all of that stuff with my mom and it's not something that you'll i, I didn't dislike it but mm. i could i say that i would have run to do that at 12 no i really wouldn't have when i i look back on my life and i look at the trajectory that it's gone on my parents really laid the foundation for that and my mother again With that intersection of social justice and intersectionality, she played a key role in that. And I'm talking about this was in the early 90s, not now, you know, in 2021. So uh, it was interesting. And 
my parents have always been that way. They've been very inclusive and I've always had a very diverse group of friends and as have my parents. And that's really shaped me in many ways. But so they would definitely be my two greatest inspirations and, and the reason I really dedicated my book to them. So what are you reading right now? I just was finished with reading The Black Friend by Fred T. Joseph. And I would highly, highly recommend. I've had his book for months, but I actually took a vacation uh, a couple of weeks ago for a week. I had a week off after I can't even remember how long. And I read his book. I have a pile of books that I've bought that I haven't read. And it's such a great read. And I highly recommend it. And he talks about the importance of critical race theory, which we can see is trying to be dismantled within the mainstream education system in America. So I highly recommend following Fred T. Joseph on Instagram. I respect I him do. so much. <laughs> oh, you do. And I respect <laughs> yeah. his work. If you haven't got The Black Friend, read it. It's fantastic. It really is. And it's an easy read as well. You're able to read it, disseminate, and start to practice some of the wisdom that he preaches in his book. So something that you are grateful for or that brings you joy right now? I can honestly say over the past year, the, the thing that I'm most grateful for is, of course, my family, my husband, who's amazing and so supportive, and my son and, and my parents and my friends and the rest of my family, my sister, my aunts, cousins, etc. But I'm so beyond grateful for my practice, Paula, without my practice, because I've been separated from everybody, too. You know, I live quite isolated. I mean, we've all been isolated but my closest friends and my parents live overseas. So that's been even more isolating. And to me, without my practice, I wouldn't have really been able to get through the past year. So my practice has been one that has helped with my mental health and it's just helped to keep me anchored and stable. Because if we think about 2020, it was insane in America. You know, we had the pandemic, we had the continued racial injustices, we had the election, we had all of the, the, the white supremacy, and I lived steeped in that, as you know from reading my article. So my practice has been my lifeline throughout the past year and really cemented the importance of having that regular practice even more. Great. So where can people connect with you online? I know you mentioned it before, but you can share again. And are there any programs or any other things you want to share that people can can find out more about you? Well, what I would say is I would love people to support my work by buying meditation with intention. I'm one of the very, very, very few South Asian women who got a book deal to write about my indigenous faith. And that has to change. Biowalk shouldn't have to self-publish. They shouldn't have to fund the publishing of their own book. I mean, they can if they want to, but it should be their choice as opposed to white supremacist institutions and, and mainstream publishing which is rooted in racism, only platforming white men and white women who are writing books on yoga and meditation. So that has to change. And the only way, Paula, that changes is if people support the work of South Asians and BIWOC authors. So a great way to do that is to purchase the book or send it as a gift. And uh, I would love it if you have read it to please leave a review on Amazon or Goodreads as that helps those of us who are not published by the huge corporate publishers that have the money to spend on marketing and promotion. I've been published by Llewellyn, who's been very supportive of my work, but they're uh, the world's largest independent. They don't have that money that the corporates have. So part of you know you interviewing me is my own marketing to help promote the book and to get the message across of the importance of representation in mainstream yoga and publishing. 
And I'll end that question by just saying the top five books on Hinduism are written by non-South Asians. That's a problem. We can't even top our own indigenous faith. So how people can help is buy the book, buy the books of South Asian authors, and to support our work beyond follows and likes. And I think people think that's supporting people of color and BIPOC, and it's not. We need you to support us by buying our books, by coming to our trainings, and by really investing in us, because that helps us to get further exposure and helps more South Asians to get opportunities. So you can follow me at Shanti Within. You can buy my book, Meditation with Intention, from really, quite frankly, anywhere that you want to purchase your book from. And you can find out more about me at my uh, link in bio at Shanti Within on Instagram. Wonderful. So thank you so much for your time and for everything that you've shared. I know this is going to be a really enlightening podcast for everybody. Well, thank you so much, Paula. It's been such a pleasure to meet you. I've really enjoyed the time that we've spent together. And I'm excited to hear from your audience what they think. Wonderful. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Weave Your Bliss podcast. We hope it was inspiring for you. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a comment for us. I want to thank the team at Team Podcast who helped get this podcast out to you. And also to thank the musicians who were the creators of this beautiful music we're listening to now. It comes from an album, Fragments of a Season, by Alexis Georgopoulos and Jeffrey Cantula-Desma. So check it out wherever you get your music. Have a wonderful day, and we will connect soon on a future episode. 